Well, good morning, church. Good morning, Jeff. Good to see all, all of you this morning. Uh, we have a special surprise this morning. I have my, my wonderful father-in-law and mother-in-law here this morning, Miss Cherry, and there's James Pompeo. Uh, those are Pearl's parents, but I treat them as my own as well. My sister-in-law, Perry, is here as well. My sister-in-law, Pernette, and her husband, Jess, and her son, Corey, are all here as well. So please, make them feel welcome after church. Go up to them, talk to them. Um, they are the loveliest people on the planet. So, Turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning as we continue our track through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, this morning I'll be going through uh, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> 1 through 7. First Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I covenant with you, that I may thrust out your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all of Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. <clears throat> then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all of the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And behold, Saul came after the, the herd out of the field and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hoed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coast of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come this morning. Lord, we gather for the glory of your Son. And Lord, we would ask today that you would help us remove anything that would interfere from us being able to hear the Word of God this morning. Lord, move mightily amongst your people. <clears throat> Have your way today, Lord. Lord, I'd ask today as well that you would enable me to proclaim your word, that you would give me unction and power to declare the glorious, most powerful, awesome King of Kings, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not take this time for granted, but let us be grateful for the freedoms that we have in this country, that we can come together and we can worship your name without fear of our lives. Lord, I ask today that this time of worship would be a sweet fragrance in your nostrils this morning. I commit this time into your hands 
In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, Nahash, excuse me for one second. For some reason, my throat's a little scratchy this morning. <clears throat> now, Nahash was king of the children of Ammon. The Ammonites were a kindred race to the Moabites, being descended from the same ancestor, the patriarch Lot. They asserted that a portion of their territory had been taken from them by Israel, and in the days of the judges severely harassed the people. The judge Jephthah attacked and defeated them with a great slaughter. It was no doubt to avenge the disgrace that they had suffered in the hands of Jephthah, that their warlike monarch, Nahash, deeming the opportunity a favorable one, owing to the old age of the reigning judge, Samuel, invaded the Israelites' country bordering upon the kingdom and besieged the city of Jabesh-Gilead. So you can get some kind of idea of the context of what's going on here and why in the world Nahash, the Ammonite, is coming after the people of God. They had a vendetta. They had a vendetta. They had been destroyed. They had been defeated. And now they were coming back thinking that this is something that rightly belonged to them. The Ammonite enemies surrounded the Israelite city and simply by doing this, they made their demands clear. The Israelite city must either surrender or be conquered. This is the idea here, is that there's always going to be a dividing line between God's people and the world. It's always going to be there. It's always going to happen. But in this situation, there's an ultimatum being made. That there's a proposal here being made is that you must either, telling this to God's people, you must surrender or be conquered. Listen, a resistance-free Christianity is really non-existent. The enemy hates you and demands that you too surrender. And this will always be an issue with God's people. 1 Peter 5 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to the eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthened, and it will settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. No matter where you are with your Christian walk, each one of us will have to make the decision at some point in our lives either to fight or to run. As Moses stood at the gate of his camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Elijah himself cried out to the Israelites on Mount Carmel. He said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord God is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Literally, this, this point that Elijah was making is how long, happy, 
about upon two bows. And this is a metaphor taken from birds hopping about from bow to bow, not knowing on which to settle. Between two opinions at all times is more dangerous and more easy than open apostasy. Why do you walk so lamely and unevenly, being so unsteady in your opinions and practices and doubtful which to choose, Jehovah or Baal? The Bible says in Proverbs 24, verse 10, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And remember this this morning, church, that God will test you. And God will use the testers as a means of sanctification. They were brought to a decisive point in their career. And this is what's so powerful about the story of Saul coming into the picture. This was uh, um, Saul's first time as a king making a decision whether to be conquered or whether to surrender. It's interesting because this type of behavior you know, is always seen when someone comes into power. How are they going to act? How are they going to save and rescue their people? In Judges 2.20, it says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that through them, so that through them, I may test Israel whether they'll keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers has kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hands of Joshua. And then it goes on to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had known any of the wars in Canaan. And then it says this, This is only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. We understand this, what's going on in context with the idea of Israel being put under these pressing decisions of whether or not they would surrender or whether or not that they would fight. Well, we got to understand this as well, that when we see enemies that come in, God allows the enemies to come in and also test us. We know that God has two ways of doing things. Now, God will allow the enemy to come into our lives at times, and God does test us. God does see what choice that we'll make under these testings. But also have to understand that God wants to know where our faithfulness is, where our devotion is. But number two, he allows these types of things to come into our life. Why? To sanctify us, to teach us to war. It challenges us. It strengthens us. It drives us. It gives us these abilities over a period of time when tribulations come, when adversaries come and they attack us. How are we going to react? Because at first when you're immature, we we react in all different kinds of ways. But as we grow in the Lord and we become more sanctified, 
we see that God uses these elements and even our enemies to strengthen us. I don't know how many of you have been put in a very pressing situation where you literally thought, I don't think I can make it one more day. It may be a time where maybe certain individuals have risen up and they've attacked you, they've slandered you, they've gossiped about you, they've destroyed your reputation. And you know the enemies at work. And you really just don't know how you're going to be able to take this type of extreme behavior. But we must remember that God doesn't waste anything. He's ordained these specific things and battles to come into our life to test to see who will trust in a time of trouble. You know how it is when everything's going great, life is peachy, there's no problems at all. You know, many times the Bible says that when we become wealthy, we forget God. And this is a point here where God brings these elements into our life to not only teach us something, but also to humble us. And as we begin to grow, as we begin to get older in our Christian faith, we learn that these things come into our lives for God to say, hey, I want to know what you're going to turn to. What is your default? What are you going to run to? You're going to run to the world. You're going to run to booze. You're going to run to drugs. You're going to run to social media. You're going to run to all these things that cannot satisfy, nor can they help you. They become distractions. Or are you going to turn to me? You know, I would love to get to the point in my own life, which I haven't, that when troubles come, and these things begin, attacks hit me, that instead of trying to escape, maybe through a worldly way, but that I would be the type of person that my natural default would be to the things of God, to the Word of God, to prayer. I want to be a man that lives in the presence of God. I want to be a man who pours his heart out to the Lord in prayer. I want my life to be identified with a man who's totally devoted to God. And when things become, these attacks come into our life, when persecution comes, who knows in what shape or form that's going to come in, that I would react in the right way. God uses these things to strengthen his children. Back to our text, Nahash had conditions to his proposal. And this was his whole idea here. I mean, he had a, it wasn't just let's just go, let's just go poke their eyes out or something enjoyable to do for our bloodlust. But there was a reason why he chose this type of Punishment upon the children of God. And Nahash the Ammonite, he answered them, he says, on this condition I will make a covenant with you that I will put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on all of Israel. Now, let me just say something really quick to that. These are normal people. Just because they were back you know, thousands of years ago, doesn't mean they, have, they don't have the same emotions and feelings and minds that we do. I mean, could you imagine someone coming up <clears throat> wanting to dominate the people of God? <clears throat> they give you an ultimatum. You know, they say either, you know, this is the condition. You either make a covenant with us or we're going to poke your eye out. You know, I could imagine 
the thoughts that would run through my brain that I definitely don't want my eye gouged out of my head. I mean, I could see, I could definitely see like, hey, we're going to cut your beard or we're going to make you starve for a month or let's put it even worse. We're going to make you just be a, a slave and work for us. I mean, that sounds horrible, but you're going to poke my eyeball out. I mean, that sounds horrendous. It sounds disgusting. What kind of vile monster would threaten somebody with that kind of punishment? It would make me shrivel to think of that. I mean, it's disgusting and it's, it's appalling. I think what, I like what Proverbs chapter 8.36 says, All those who hate me love death. This is an idea of bloodlust. This is nothing life-giving about this. 1 John 3.15 says, and, and this is a great um, opportunity because a lot of times I look into scriptures and I read these stories and these tragedies that happen and some of the, the hardships that Israel fell under. And sometimes I can't really always at times grasp the full reality of their suffering or what it is that they're going through. You know, I, I would <clears throat> love to be able to get to a point where my compassion, empathy uh, for God's people would shine to such an extent that I would definitely feel these, these issues that they went through. But they were being punished. And, you know, you, you look at these situations and we say, you know what, how can this Jabash fellow be so disgustingly vile? How can he be so hateful? I mean, look around the world. Look around the world. Look at all the things that are going on in our country today, just in our country alone. Think about all the innocent bloodshed, all the babies who have been slaughtered. You know, just recently we've been watching, uh, I think it's called Court TV or something. We're watching this trial take place and this, this man is being accused of murdering his son and murdering his wife. And I mean, these things happen all the time. And we sit there dismayed. I don't know, would you ever sit there dismayed at all the evil that's going on in this country? And it's almost shocking. It's almost traumatic. It's almost to the point where you just want to turn the television off and go crawl into the bed. But you look at these things, you're like, how dare him? How could he ever, ever even consider murdering his family? Then the other day I read that a teacher had taken away a video game from one of the classmates in there and she was literally almost beaten to death because she had removed someone's video game while he was in class. He got up and just beat her to a pulp. And I look at these things, I'm like, the hatred, the hell, the damning nature of these types of atrocities that go on in this country. And it makes me shrivel. But I could sit there and look at the television and go, man, how could he do that? How in the world could a person do something like that? But then I read in 1 John 3, 15, it says, you know, and before we become too quick to judge, I'd like you to remember these words for just a moment, church. Whoever hates his brother, the Bible says, is a murderer. And you know, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, what about you? What about your life? 
We can sit there and read these stories about these people doing such hideous things. We can watch television going, he needs to be in prison. He needs to go to the electric chair. But what about you? What about you? What about your life? How many nasty conversations have we had about others just this week? Or what about this morning on the way to church? What about the gossip and the slander that goes on sometimes in our homes when we talk about others? Do you realize inside of God you are murdering people? You're just as bad or worse than that man who had killed his family in the sight of God. That's how holy God is. He sees the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts as if we've committed the same crime. It's easy to point our fingers at all the gross sin that goes on around the world. But just take it for a moment. Let's examine your own heart, your own life, for just a minute. Look at your attitude, the way you judge other people, the way you talk about other people. We get addicted to this kind of behavior. And God hates it. God hates it. He sees it as murder. And yet we just go on every day. It's easy you know, to, 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 to push it off on somebody else. But we take no responsibility for our own actions because we don't think it's a big deal long as we're not stabbing a knife into someone's gut. But in God's eyes, that's exactly how He sees our behavior. I'm not saying any of you are guilty of these crimes by any means. But I know I have been. I know I have been. There's times I've said things about other people. There's times I've got caught up in conversations that I know I shouldn't be getting caught up in. There's times I've said things about others that they don't deserve, nor is it right. And it's absolutely terrible. We need to examine ourselves into the light of God's holy character and see where we stand. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jabesh certainly wasn't loving his neighbor as himself, was he? But how do we fit the bill here? Commentator David Guzik remarks, says, Nahash made this demand for many reasons. First, it was to glorify himself by humiliating the men of the city and all of Israel. Half-blinding the men of the city would bring reproach upon all of Israel by making Israel look weak and unable to prevent such an atrocity. Second, it would make the men of Jabesh-Gilead unable to fight effectively. In battle, in hand-to-hand combat, the man with one eye has less depth perception and is at a disadvantage to a man with two eyes. You see, there was a plan of action to remove the right eye. Because he knew that if he could remove their right eye, he could eliminate their ability to fight for themselves. They wouldn't be able to fight. They'd be an embarrassment, not only a reproach to Israel, a reproach to the people of God, but also if they ever did want to retaliate, they just couldn't. They were done. 
This is always the enemy's plan. And he still uses it effectively today. Take an individual. Leading down the path of sin. He takes the bait. He falls into sin. It becomes known to the church. And the whole church becomes a reproach. This is the enemy's greatest plan. To subdue you. To get you to such an extent that you lose your ability to fight back. This is the whole idea of Satan spelled out right before us. I like what Clark says. The commentator Clark, he says, he who, he who opposes his shield to the enemy with his left hand therefore hides his left eye and looks at his enemy with his right eye. He therefore who plucks out at the right eye makes men useless in war. I mean, this Jabash guy, he knew what he was doing. He knew the plan was going to be a permanent plan. To literally maim them to such an extent where it embarrasses the people of God. And remember this as well. The ungodly, Satan himself, hates God. Let me ask you this morning, who's made in the image of God? We are. But Satan can't get to God, so he gets to his children. This is the bloodlust of Satan. This whole idea of gouging out the eye of the face of another human being is literally spitting in the face of God. It wasn't a knife in the back, but it was a situation where it was face to face. It was personal. And this was the action or proposal to this action. We see the same type of thing happening again in a few chapters ahead, which we read um, in chapter 13. Uh, We read that there was no blacksmiths to be found in all of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and weapons. This meant that there, there were no weapons and any tool that needed sharpening, like an axe, goad, or plow, or any other utensil, they would need to go down to the Philistines to sharpen their tools. Think about that for a moment. This is how desperate Israel had become. Is that they had lost their entire ability to be able to fight. The enemy, the, the, the tyrant of the enemy held them in such an oppressive state. Israel, the country, was in its lowest state of depression and degradation. The Philistines, after the great victory over the sons of Eli, had become the virtual masters of the land. Their policy in disarming the natives has been often followed in the east for repairing any serious damage to their agriculture implements they had to apply to the neighboring forts. We know it wasn't even so bad that Israel was completely outnumbered. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Philistines had a huge technological advantage over the Israelites as well. There were actually so few iron weapons available that the only royal family could be properly equipped. This was Jonathan and Saul were the only two that had swords. Think about that. An entire army has to go up shriveling and cowering under fear to be able to get their utensils sharpened 
by the enemy where all of their weapons had been completely removed other than Jonathan and Saul. It's the same story over and over again. And this is the type of thing that happened. This is literally the oppressive state that Israel had found themselves again and again and again. Back to our text in verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. They're asking for seven days. And this was a common practice among those calling for war. The idea here is the hope that their king would be aroused and rescue would soon come. They're like, give us seven days before we're going to make any decisions. And in this seven days of respite, that they would hope that somewhere, somehow, their new anointed king would rise up and they would become rescued. And if there was no one to save them, Nahash could do to them as he pleased, and losing an eye seemed better to them than losing their lives. I mean, at this point, this is what it was. Seven days of help doesn't come, then we're going to lose an eyeball. But you know what? An eyeball is better than losing their life. But in essence they would lose their lives because they would be in permanent slavery forever under a tyrant king. You know, instead of just humbling themselves before God and confessing the sins that had brought them into trouble, they put God altogether aside and basically offered to become the servants of the Ammonites. We see here the sad effect of sin and careless living in lowering men's spirits, sapping courage and discouraging noble effort. Oh, it is pitiable, pitiable to see men tamely submitting to a vile master. Yet how often is the sight repeated? How often do men virtually say to the devil, make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. So the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And the Bible says that all the people lifted up their voices and they wept. They all lifted up their voices and they cried out. But notice something here is that they are, they are not crying out to God. They're crying out in fear. They're terrified. And they're crying out to such an extent that Saul, coming behind the herd from a field, and Saul said, what troubles the people? Why do they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Guzik goes on, he says, this is the humility of the king of Israel. Saul was already anointed and recognized as king, yet in a sense there was nothing for him to do. He really didn't know where to begin when it came to setting up a royal court and bureaucracy, and Israel never had one before. So he just went back home, went to work in the field, and figured God would tell him what to do when the time was right. A couple things here that you can recognize as well. It seems to be a complete disconnect from the people. 
Okay, I get it. I think it's a humbling factor that, you know what, I'm a king. You know, I'm not beyond work. I'm not beyond the, um, you know, the ability to roll up my, my, my sleeves and get dirty. But how unconscious was he of the circumstances that was so near to him? The sweet people of God were being harassed and terrorized and threatened that their eye was going to get poked out. And he's out in the field following the herds, doing farm work, which is fine and dandy. There's nothing wrong with that. But leadership, in essence, or any king, should never be disconnected from his people. I mean, even, even today, you see a lot of, lot of even pastors that live in ivory towers, and they have no clue what goes on in their church. There's a complete disconnect. Well, I've been ordained. You know what I mean? But they never have any contact with the sheep. They don't know what's going on. They're totally a bliss of what's happening in their church. It's a big disconnect. Now, I don't know how you feel about this text, but I would say that he should have been connected. He had, born, he had been ordained a king. And regardless of the circumstances that are going on, I really believe that he should have been there and knowing exactly what kind of pressures his people were being put under. The king-elect had returned to his farm work till occasion should call him to a higher duty. And then the Bible says in verse 6, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. We can best describe a certain quality of anger by tracing it to the direct action of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what we would call holy indignation against evil. This was the Holy Spirit, by the way, causing Saul to become angry. Brothers and sisters, we need Holy Spirit indignation. We have fallen asleep behind the wheel. We have lost sight of the things that are going on around us. We have been completely disconnected from the tragedies from around this world because we get so comfortable being the boy in the bubble. We know how to get along. We know how to say yes to each other. We know how to agree with all of our theology and our doctrine. We shout to each other when we preach and when we sing. Totally oblivious what's going on a hundred feet from our home. And it's tragic. It's tragic. But listen to this. The Spirit of God, not Saul didn't just conjure up anger. Like, oh, it wasn't that at all. But it was God's anger. It was God's indignation totally taking over a human vessel. God was on top of him. God was his spiritual muscle. God enabled him. God gave him the mind, but the Spirit of God gave him the anger and indignation to stand up and fight. And this is what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon us in such a way. I know there's times when we just got to live our lives, go to our jobs. We don't need this spirit-filled power to do great things, but to live a consecrated, set-apart, godly, quiet life. 
But there's, there comes a time that when things are happening and the enemy's knocking on our front door and where God will empower His people to do things in the exact measure of what needs to be accomplished. You think about the times during the Scottish Covenanters when they were being slain. Read about the killing fields when their families were being brutalized and murdered and men were being shot in front of their families and they were just being destroyed. The Spirit of God came upon them like electricity and empowered them to be able to succumb and overcome what was going on in their day. I believe God gives us the exact amount of power that we need to confront whatever issue is confronting us. To stand around in church and use the Holy Spirit as a form of entertainment to push people over and to make a bunch of noise is an abomination. The Spirit of God was given to us not to play in church. The Spirit of God was given to us so we can go out into this world and succeed and not be crushed and be destroyed. This is why we're given the power. Jesus said, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs to the ends of the earth. This is the whole idea here, is that His Spirit would come upon us as it did Saul and move us to such an extent that we could go anywhere and be, what I would say term, successful in the eyes of God. I know there's martyrs who have been burnt at the stake. And during their times, I think of Patrick Hamilton in Scotland, they burnt him at the stake because he'd come against much of the Roman Catholicism of his day. And they put him upon that stake and and they they, they put gunpowder bags around him. And the gunpowder never went off, but a few of them did. So instead of burning him up in flames, it slowly roasted him for six hours. And as he was being roasted on the stake, it was the best opportunity to draw a crowd. The crowd came to watch this man roast, this enemy of God they called him. But during this time of his roasting, he's preaching the word of God because people are coming in firing distance. He's preaching the word of God, winning souls before he perished. But don't tell me he was up there in his own strength. It was the spirit of God upon him, giving him the martyr's grace to be able to contend under some of the worst type of punishment. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You see these men happily going to their graves, happily being burned at the stake, happily being sawed asunder, happily being pulled to pieces, going out in front of the Colosseums and being mauled by wild animals. They did it cheerfully. And I read these stories, I'm thinking, how in the world could anybody do this cheerfully? Terrifying. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he gives you the grace to be able to handle everything. And here, you know, before we jump to conclusion and say, oh, no, no, um, God never wants us to be angry. Not the anger that comes from hatred, no. But indignation against evil, yes. When the Spirit came upon Saul, he was ferocious. He turned him from a farmer to a lion real quick. He became Israel's rescuer. It's a beautiful story. You know, I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. He says, silence in the face of evil is evil. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. And God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. 
Not to act is to act. William Wilberforce said this, having heard all of this, speaking about all the damaging things that went on in his day with slavery. He took the pastors even out to these, these slavery boats. If you've ever studied this, ever looked into this, it is horrendous. It'll keep you awake at night and how these people were treated. And at that time, the pastors just ignored it. They didn't want nothing to do with it. They didn't want to see it. They want to hear about it. So what did he do? He got a boat and he took them out so they could see it. They could smell it. They could see the way these people were being treated like animals. And he says, having heard all of this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you didn't know. Saul didn't look the other way. Praise God. I know he screws up later on in his career, but he certainly didn't look the other way. Martin Luther said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the, that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. We need the power of God again in our lives in this church, in all the churches in this country. But I'm saying for us, we need to be aroused. I need to be aroused. I'm sick and tired of the way things are. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of looking the other way. I'm tired of business as usual. I'm tired of ritualistic living and ritualistic church life. I'm sick of it. I don't know how many more years God's going to give me, but I don't want to waste any more years pretending and playing church. I'm tired of whistling Dixie while this world goes to hell. We've got a job to do. We've got the only remedy to sin. We have Christ. Preaching Christ. The world is going insane. When nations die, people begin to go insane. It's insane out there. It's insane what they're doing out there today in in this world, in this crazy nation. I'm not even going to get into it. But to stand up in front of this church and cry out that I'm a warrior of the Lord and never do anything else, it's hypocrisy. Things need to change. When the Spirit of the Lord comes upon men, they'll not need to be experts or professionals. The Spirit of God will grant them the wisdom and the power to confront the task at hand. Matthew Henry says, When zeal for the glory of God and the love for the brethren urge men to earnest efforts, and when God is pleased to help, great effects may speedily be produced. Jesus said in Luke 21.15, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Christ will give us a mouth that our adversaries will not be able to resist or contend. 
Christ says, I will give you a mouth. I will give you ability to speak. I will give you the mind of God. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to move in power. When the Spirit of God comes upon someone, it drives them into action. They won't sit around twiddling their thumbs, but will plunge into battle knowing that the victory belongs to the Lord. There's no better place to be than being plunged right into battle, right into the heart of God, right into the will of God. The most satisfactory times for me have always been when I've been out doing the Lord's work. Did you know it's statistically proven that missionaries that are in poverty are the most satisfied people on the planet? You realize that? It's not money. It's not gimmicks. It's not big televisions. It's not all that stuff. You want to know why? Because they have so little to worry about. And they have purpose to why they exist. You realize having that purpose and all the other stuff just being shut down. And sometimes we just need to shut everything down. I'm not saying we have to move out into the country and be mountain men. But I'm saying sometimes it's unplug. In Jeremiah 5.14, the Bible says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I'll make my words in your mouth fire, and the, speak, the people would, and it shall devour them. It's a beautiful story, even though the chapters change as we go. But Saul became the hero king to his people. He became the hero king. In verse 7 it says, So he took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them into pieces, and sent them throughout all of the territory of Israel by the hands of his messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. In other words, it's oxen or your eyeballs. Symbolic acts are often more eloquent than words. The symbolic act, like the cutting up of the woman in Judges 19.29, made a deep impression. The fear of Jehovah fell upon the people so that they went out as one man. There's something about unifying together to conquer a foe. Then the Bible says, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people. And guess what? They came out. They came out. What will it be that will drive us out? What is it going to take for us to take drastic action? For me to take drastic action? The first fruit of Saul's government was to rescue of Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. This is a picture of our hero king, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The Lord Jesus Christ, that's who. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself up for our sins, what? To rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. 2 Peter 2.9 says, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ is our rescuer. And I'd appeal to you this morning, if you don't, if you have not been rescued by Him, 
I'd appeal to you to repent of your sin. You don't know when you're going to take your last breath. You have no idea when God's going to call you home. God has a million ways to take us out. We all know people that is drastically removed immediately without any warning. Even the godly or the ungodly. But if you are not ready to face God, you do not want to fall under his displeasure for all eternity. You have a chance. God has offered you the mercy today. He's allowed you to come into the presence of the gospel being preached one more time. If you have not come to Christ, if you have not surrendered, if you have not turned away from your sin and completely trusted in the finished work of Christ, you're doomed. You do not want to die in your sin. You don't want to fall under the wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. Hell has no exits. There's no way out. Once that happens, you're all alone under the wrath of God, the fire of God, the darkness of God forever. See, hell isn't the absence of the Lord because the Bible says in the book of Revelation that they're punished in His presence for all eternity. It's the absence of His mercy and grace. You get His wrath and judgment. Any of you this morning that feel convicted, even those of you that have been pretending with your Christianity that aren't Christian, know behind closed doors it's buffoonery. And your life is not what it all seems to be. And you're playing around. And you may have the church fooled, but you don't have God fooled. I'll say this is you as well. Take repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. I'm not going to say make a decision and come forward. But I'm going to tell you this much. If you truly are feeling repentant and convicted and crushed, and you see the holiness of God and the radical depravity of your own heart, I'd appeal to you to come to Christ. There's many of us here today, There's our pastors are here today, friends of the church, if you are ready to come to Christ and you haven't, I would really encourage you to talk to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we're thankful for your word. Lord, I'd ask you, Lord God, that you would move powerfully in this congregation today. The most important thing that can be accomplished this morning is that the truth is preached. And men and women come under the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, save your people. Lord, save us from our despondency. Save us from our procrastination. Save us from our indifference. Save us from our coldness. And use what remaining minutes that we have left in our existence to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.